verses 8 through 30. And this is the last of his preface. Uh, he, he receives his call in, in chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah receives his, his call to the prophecy or to his ministry. And, and these first five chapters have been a preface, kind of just laying out the whole landscape of what's gone on in Judah and Jerusalem throughout his ministry, really. And, and as we go into this, it's a song. Remember this chapter uh, we found out right away that, that this is basically a song that Isaiah uh, was singing, perhaps at the Feast of, of Tabernacles. Uh, but there are people there. And, and the first part of this song was the song of the vineyard, the first seven verses in that. And, and we saw where uh, the Lord had given every advantage to his people, every advantage to his vineyard, if you will, uh, but they grew wild grapes, even though he gave them every opportunity for success and, and there were these wild grapes. Well, now the offensive fruits, if you will, is gathered and, and woes are going to be pronounced here. You will notice that as I read through, there are a total of six woes and there are a total of four therefores. And we'll see the structure here in just a little bit. But, uh, but let's read. Uh, I will read Isaiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness, then the lambs shall graze as in their pasture, and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as the dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their roots will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. The roaring is like a lion, like, a, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even these words that on the surface can terrify us, we know your truth is here, Lord, and that you will grow us firm in that truth and give us comfort in this truth, Lord. And so we pray that as we look at it, you will speak to our hearts, that we may know you better. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a while. I think I did this uh, before, but you probably have forgotten. Newton's third law of motion, if anyone remembers that, it's, it's the uh, uh, action-reaction type thing. That, but anyhow, the, the, the third law of, of motion here, according to Newton, is that in a collision between two objects, and I am reading this because I don't really have it memorized, both experience forces between them that are equal in magnitude and opposite in direction. When these two forces collide. And I think I gave this quiz before, and, and, and I'll give the quiz again. So imagine you have a bus coming down the street one way, and there's a mosquito flying the other way, and and the mosquito hits the, the windshield of the bus, which of the forces is greater, the mosquito against the bus or the bus against the mosquito? And the answer is very good. They're equal. Because of Newton's third law here, the opposing forces are equal in magnitude, opposite 
in direction. Well, Isaiah in this, in this uh, preface that he gives us has set up this collision, if you will. And before we look at the collision that he sets up, we'll look at, at the end of this preface here with all of these woes. And there is a, a pattern to these woes. There's the first two, and, and they're somewhat related, uh, build a little bit on each other. And then we get two therefores. And then after those first two therefores, we get four more woes, and they are progressive. They build on each other. And then we get two more therefores. And so these two sets of therefores, they kind of match each other a little bit as well. The therefores, the first therefore in both sets show that the punishment fits the crime. We'll see that. And then the second therefore in both sets uh, talks about how God is acting uh, in total judgment. And so let's look at it. We have the, the first woe in verse 8. And some of these ideas we've talked about before, Isaiah has set these up, and, and this is one of them. Those who join house to house and add field to field until there's no more room. Uh, th this idea of collecting more and, and more and as mentioned previously, he's not really condemning having things, but it's, it's how they're acquiring these things. They are, uh, they are oppressing the poor. They just keep gathering more and more, and their eyes are fixed on what more they can gather, and, and they build house upon house and field to field. And this is against what they were supposed to be doing uh, in, in the Mosaic Law. Uh, Leviticus 25 and other places, you can see uh, that, that the families were supposed to have a way to keep their own land. Every family was supposed to have its own portion of land, but, but the rich people had found ways. They changed laws and, and, and mixed things up so that uh, so that they could defraud, basically, and take the land. And they just kept getting more. And poor people just kept losing more. Woe to those people. And, and the Lord of hosts in verse 9, the, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. And, and actually, it's hard to translate that in English. Um, it's more dramatic than, than what it actually says. There's... There's really not a verb there. Uh, what it says literally, if you were to read it in Hebrew, is, in my ear, the Lord of hosts. And then it quotes the Lord. It, it, he doesn't say he speaks to me or he swore or any of that, but just, in my ear. This, the Lord is screaming in my ear. Here's what I'm going to do. It's, it's very dramatic. The many houses, desolate. Yeah, they're large and they're beautiful, but you know what? They'll be without inhabitants. And all those fields that you've joined together, 10 acres of vineyard, you'll, you'll get one bath of, of crop. Now, uh, the measurements here. First of all, the 10 acres, that's kind of a guess. Um, uh, the exact size is unknown, but this all has to do with um, 
with the amount of land it would take a team of oxen to, to plow in a certain period of time. They, they had that figured out. And an acre is a good guess. But in this, he, he mentions there's 10 teams of, of oxen. So about 10 acres and, and a bath, what's that? Well, that's about six gallons worth of crop. So you have 10 acres about, and you're coming up with about six gallons worth of, of crop. Uh, a homer of seed shall yield, but an ephah, and, and if you were to do the calculations there, what, what you're doing is getting basically one-tenth of, of what you sowed. You, you sowed X amount, and, and actually you reap only a tenth of that. It, it's, a, it, it's a terrible uh, return you're getting, although you've added all these fields together, you're, you're really not getting any more crop. You're getting less than what you should get on even just one acre. So woe, woe to you. Uh, then in verse 11, we get the second woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have the lyre and harp and the tambourine and the flute. Here's basically what you have a party. You have strong drink and a good band. That's really what he's getting at here. You got the music cranked up and you're drinking and everybody's happy, so they think, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord. They do not see the work of his hands. The pursuit of this drink indulgence is what gets them up in the morning. It's what keeps them up at night. It's this pursuit of uh, intoxication or, or sensual indulgence. And we see this very vivid link between that and, and the loss of spiritual perception, if you notice that. They don't regard the deeds of the Lord. They don't even see the work of his hands anymore. It's one of the big dangers of, of sin is that the more sin there is in your life, the more it displaces your awareness of God and what God is doing. And they filled their life with this party in their big houses with these fields upon fields. And so we get to the first of the therefores. We've got the first two woes and, and now the, the therefores. And we see in the first one, as I mentioned, that the punishment fits the crime. And the first one is, is basically, hey, the party's over. Uh, for those of you old enough to remember the early days of Monday Night Football and Dandy Don Meredith singing, turn out the lights, the party's over, uh, once the game had pretty much been decided. And that's basically Isaiah's song here. Turn out the lights, your party's over, your pride's going to come to an end. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. They can't even see God working anymore. They don't regard him and their lack of knowledge. They'll go into exile. Their, their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. And there's a whole bunch of irony in this song. 
They're going to go into exile. They, they don't know God anymore. Even though they've added field to field, they're, they're going to be hungry. Even though they get up in the morning thinking about what they're going to drink and stay up all night drinking it, they're going to be parched. Everything they were banking on here is not going to work out. There is one getting well fed, and, and the one getting well fed is not really a who, it's more of a where, at least to the second therefore. Therefore, Sheol, which is the place of the dead, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Those who just kept building bigger houses and getting more fields at, at the expense of others, they'll go down. Also, the revelers, the partiers that we've had from morning till night with their strong drink and good bands, the revelers and he who exalts in her, they, they will go down to Sheol. Again, the irony is that... that uh, they were trying to satisfy their appetites, and that was all they were really living for. But in the end, the only appetite that is met is Sheol's. That's the only mouth that gets filled. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged his appetite. Revelers go down. Man is humbled, each one is brought low in verse 15, and, and the eyes of the haughty are, are brought low. And, and if that verse sounds familiar, it's exactly the same as it was back in chapter 2, verse 9. He, he sings it again. And, and the eyes, he says the eyes of the haughty, that's, that's often the organ of desire. You, you look, it, it looks good. That's what Eve did. She saw the fruit, it looked good. And, and other, uh, we see that in the Old Testament all the time. They see something. It looks good. And, and these eyes of desire, this covetousness. And in verse 16, we get a but. But, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Now, if you remember, and if you were to look back at verse 7, you will see this. The crop that the Lord had, had uh, done everything for. They were supposed to produce these fruits of righteousness and these fruits of justice. They didn't get that. The Lord didn't get that at all. He got the, the sour grapes. So now the Lord himself, he will bring justice and, and he will show himself holy in righteousness. That word holy means separateness. And, and he will bring justice and, and righteousness and, and separate from all this nonsense going on, all these wild grapes, all this bad fruit, he'll show himself holy in righteousness. And when he calls us to holiness, that's what he's calling us to. Separated from the nonsense of the world, holy in righteousness. And, and in verse 17, the lambs will graze as in their pasture. Nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. And, and what we have here is there's nobody left. Sheol has taken its fill. The people have been exiled. And, and in these big 
beautiful houses and large fields. There's animals eating, grazing. A few foreign travelers going through. The, the nomads will eat among the ruins of the rich. Uh, one, uh, one puts it this way, the image completes the picture begun in, in verse 14 and adds to the irony, when judgment comes, Sheol will eat up the sinners who frequent the feast and then the banqueting hall will lie in ruins and only sheep and traveling foreigners will eat there. Everything they had banked on. And they're not enjoying it. Sheep and, and a few nomads are. And so then we get to the next set of woes. And these are progressive. They'll build on each other. And just very quickly, uh, I'll go through how they progress here. We'll, we'll see the people's attitude in verses 18 and 19. People's attitude toward uh, sin and toward the Lord. Then in verse 20, the, the next uh, woe, we'll see people's attitude about moral values. In the next woe in verse 21, people's attitude concerning themselves and, and who they recognize as authority. And then in verses 22 and, and 23, we're, we're back to self-gratification and, and using the system to their gain. We, we see that these all build on each other, but let's start with the first uh, woe, or technically the, the third woe here. But in verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. This uh, often reminds me of, of back uh, when I was young on the farm, and I've mentioned the farm before where we would all go and, and have fun and and there would be uh, the hay mow with the hay bales. And twine would wrap up these hay bales. And every now and then, uh, my Uncle Dale would go and, hey, can you throw on a couple of bales of hay and a couple of bales of straw? And you'd go up and, and this twine, every now and then, you'd pull it and the twine would break. And, and that's just how twine was. Even as a child, if I jerked it hard enough, I could get it to break. And, but if we needed something to really be able to tie something down, we would braid three pieces of twine together, and then you had a rope. And that was pretty hard to break. In fact, I think my uncle told me they devised some kind of device with some things they had laying around, and you'd feed three pieces of twine in and turn the handle and make yourself a rope, and, and it was really effective. And, and that's what Isaiah's getting at here. You start with these cords of falsehood, these twine, if you will, but all of a sudden you're tied by rope this progressive nature of sin. Holding on to what you what is false. And they, they bind themselves to the sin. And, and what starts as a cord becomes a rope. And, and, and it progresses. This, this sin leads to this arrogance in verse 19 that God has to prove himself. Where are you, God? I, I, I got to see you. Show yourself. The skepticism doubts that he's actually active in the world. And remember, they're, they're blinded. They've blinded themselves, and they can't see his work. And there is this arrogant and erroneous deconstruction of their faith. 
if I can use that term. And deconstruction is a dangerous yet trendy thing in some corners, even of Christianity, people deconstructing faith. Isaiah saw it. And we can see it in our world. Isaiah saw exactly where it leads. Just as we can see where it leads, it's the next woe. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who put darkness and light and then mix that up, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's, it's the next stage. The moral code gets reversed and sin becomes the accepted way of life. Publicly, that's what he's getting at with the lights. If we were to turn off the lights, we would all see it. And also privately, that's what he means with the bitter and the sweet. That's a, a matter of private taste. But it all gets turned around. And sin is actually the accepted way of life. And leads to the next woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. There's this insistence on human autonomy. We are the wise ones. We are the shrewd ones. If you believe in God at all, he's a little outdated. If you believe in his word at all, well, that's not quite right. We're wiser. We're more shrewd. We've evolved. We're better than we've ever been. And the final authority for morality and the final authority for theology is primarily culture and psychology and sociology. Maybe some history and maybe nature, not understanding that nature itself is fallen because of sin, but it's certainly not God. We'll put culture above God. And that leads to the next woe. Woe to those who are wise, or I'm sorry, woe to those who are heroes at, at drinking wine, valiant men and mixing strong drink, because then, because then it becomes all about indulgence. And success is measured by the degree of self-satisfaction achieved. Success is measured by the indulgence you've enjoyed or maybe are enjoying. That's, that's the mark of success. They acquit the guilty for a bribe and, and deprive the innocent of, of his right. It's, we get this covetousness back in because, once again, it's all about me. It's all about us. As J. Alec Matier writes, when life consists of the following of sin, denial of the living God, and rewriting the moral code, there is no stopping place short of complete devotion to self-pleasing. And this is uh, the type of sin that is often easier to see in others than it is in ourselves. This type of sin and this type of, of arrogance, we can clearly see it in other people, the other side, if you will. But sometimes we have to remember what Isaiah is saying here. We can be blinded by 
our own sin, sins we have tied ourselves to and are now blinded by. And we have to check our own hearts. What Isaiah writes here is, is our culture. And, and these are our hearts that Isaiah writes about. And therefore, the therefores really hit hard when we get to the second set of therefores. Therefore, in verse 24, the tongue of fire devours the stubble and, and dry grass sinks down in the flame. The root rottenness blossoms like dust. Now, now remember, the punishment fits the crime. What did the people want? What did Jerusalem and Judah want? They, they wanted God, show yourself speedily, quickly. Let's see it, God. Let's see what you have. Well, have you ever seen dry grass burn? It goes pretty quickly. The punishment fits the crime. Their roots get exposed as rottenness, blossoms. They're not producing any good fruit. They'll just go up like dust. They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And fundamentally, this is the problem. They've rejected and despised the law and the word of God. They had it. It was spoken to them. Moses had written it down. They knew what it was, but it did not fit in with their culture. And it did not fit in with the way they wanted to live life. And so they rejected it. They despise it. I'm sure changed it to make, make it say what they wanted it to say. We clearly see that by the time of the Pharisees. And that fundamentally is their problem. All the indulgences, all the revamping of the moral code, all of their willingness to embrace corruption and arrogance and injustice, those are simply outcomes of this fundamental problem. They've rejected the law of the Lord and despised his word. Which leads to the second therefore. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people in verse 25. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked. Now, there was an earthquake in the days of King Uzziah. That was the first king that uh, Isaiah uh, ministered under. And, and Amos uh, mentions it in Amos chapter 1, and Zechariah mentions it in, in Zechariah uh, 14. But there was this earthquake, and apparently it was a big one. The mountains quaked, and, and corpses as refuse in the midst of the streets. And once again, there's kind of that, it, that uh, idea of it happened quickly. And, and all his anger was not turned away. His hand stretched out. And, and then in verse 26, he'll, he'll raise a signal for the nations away and, and whistle for them to come uh, from the ends of the earth. The same way you'd whistle for a dog and he comes running because he knows there's something to eat. The Lord's going to whistle and these nations are going to come running. And, and the, the, the complexity of the world in, in nature, the complexity of the world among all these nations, you see, it's all in the Lord's hands here. And, and he'll whistle and they'll come and notice they're going to come speedily and they'll come quickly. 
and there's nothing that's going to impede them, and they're ready. Notice that. There's, they don't stumble. They don't sleep. Their waistband isn't loose. Their sandal won't break. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are bent. Horses' hooves like flint. Wheels whirl like the, the whirlwind. They're, they're ready to come, and they're coming, and nothing's going to stop them. And then we get this, this, this picture of, of double helplessness in verse, starting at verse 29. They're roaring like a lion. They growl and they seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They growl over it like the growling of the sea. And then we get this image of being on a ship in the middle of the sea and, and the waves are crashing in and you're looking for land don't see anything, just darkness. The light darkened by the clouds, and again, the irony of they're turning light into dark, and, and they're not, the light's not even going to be there anymore. And this is how Isaiah ends the preface. And we are stuck in an extremely uncomfortable tension when he brings us to the end of this preface. And here's, here's our, our, our tension. In, in the first, basically, two sections of this preface, you, you can kind of split up chapter one, and then chapters two through four. Uh, they're, they're different, but they spoke of the same thing. The message in, in that first part, those, those first two sections, was that sin... Human sin cannot ultimately frustrate God's purposes, and that in God, mercy triumphs over wrath. That was basically the first part of, of this preface, but in this third section here in, in chapter 5, we see the other side, and, and as one puts it, we, it poses this shattering question, and I'll quote his question, when the Lord has done all, and he refers to uh, verse 4 here, the Lord did everything for these people. When the Lord has done all, must the darkness of divine wrath close in and the light flicker and fade? We have these two eternal truths coming at each other, the wrath of God against sin and the mercy of God. And they're closing in. Two forces together. This is the crisis in which Isaiah ministered. It's a crisis for humankind, for sure, because of the deserved wrath they should get. And it's a crisis, if I can use this phrase, it's even a, a crisis for God. Can mercy be exhausted? Can mercy be defeated? We've got this clash. And, and this tension can't be like two tectonic plates deep in the earth coming together. And, and as they push together, there's this upheaval. There's this earthquake that the people knew about. This earthquake and shatters everything what gives what do we do with this tension 
Well, before we get to Isaiah's answer, we're going to go back in the coming weeks to the book of John. We've been tracking our way all the way through John, and we've got uh, as far as where he prayed with his disciples in, in the upper room. And we left just before the garden uh, and where he will be arrested. And we're going to go back to that, John 18, starting next week. And the events that lead up basically to his resurrection, but the events also including that point where God's wrath and God's mercy come crashing down on Christ, hanging on a cross. Where that man on a cross, sinless man, took the full wrath of our sin on that cross so that the mercy of God can be lavished on all of those who believe in that man, who trust in that man, and who know that man as their Savior, the one who died for their sins. The wrath of God and the mercy of God clash at that point. And Matthew records that at the death of Jesus, the ground shook and the rocks were split open. These two forces met. And the wrath was taken out on Christ. And we get the mercy. See, there's only one way this tension that Isaiah presents to us can get solved. And it's all of God. It is all of God. The God who took the wrath of our sin, that we can receive his mercy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We do thank you for being a God of justice and a God of righteousness and even a God of wrath against sin. And we thank you for putting Christ on that cross to take all that wrath for our sin. We thank you for the mercy we have in Christ, that we are completely forgiven, that we are made your children, and that we have a future with you in your glorious kingdom. Lord, we thank you. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.